Well, this morning we want to get back into the study of Philippians. This is called more opening statements. I guess we call it foundational statements about this book. And we're going to look this morning at the city in which it was located and then the beginning, the origin of the church at Philippi to whom this letter was written by Paul while he was in prison. Just remind you that last week we tried to define joy, which is a calm, settled inner gladness that only comes from God. Joy is an evidence of my being a Christian, but it's also what sustains me as a Christian each day. The joy of the Lord is my strength. We ask and answer just very simply, why should we study Philippians? Well, if we can get a grasp of Philippians, we can answer the question that people sometimes are asking without knowing it. Where do I find peace? Where do I find real joy? Where do I find contentment in a world that seems to be turned upside down on its head? Interesting, in the book of Philippians, joy is mentioned a lot of times. I hope I won't ask you to raise your hand. Did you read it through this week? Good. If you didn't, that's okay. Next week's another week. Go at it again. But try to read it through at least once a week. And as you're going through, just if you have a pen or pencil, mark certain things and let the Lord uh, get that message in our hearts. Only 104 verses, so just sit down maybe over a cup of coffee and for maybe 15 or 20 minutes, you probably can read through it very easily. And I think the last thing that I mentioned last week, which is really important, is that the guy who wrote this is someone who understands the necessity of joy writing it from his background and the immediate context of being in prison. All right, this morning, some more opening statements, some more foundational thoughts. Uh, Number one, some of the most well-known and often quoted verses in the Bible are found in Philippians. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to... Say, you know that. How about chapter 3 and verse 10? Paul says that I might know him, the fellowship of his sufferings, the power of his resurrection. That's a great verse that's often quoted. And then in chapter 4, there's three really good ones that I think are often quoted. In chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul said, I have learned in whatever the old King James says, whatever state I'm in, or whatever, no matter the circumstances, I have learned to be content. Man, that's something to pursue in our lives, is it not? Just to be satisfied and content where I'm at with what God has given to me. And then verse 13 of chapter 4, I can do all things, you know that, through Christ who gives me strength. And then verse 19, but my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glory, the riches that he has in Christ Jesus. So Philippians is something that's kind of on our radar, and we often quote those verses. Now, for the last few minutes this morning, I want to talk about the city and the church. Now, I want, to, I want to tell you that the city, talking about that, is going to be a real quick, brief overview. I'm not going to give a history lesson. I wouldn't try to do that in this kind of setting anyway, and I'd probably have to back class and learn some more before I gave it to you as well. But I think I can give you a couple of highlights about the, the, the city of Philippi and what its significance is in that part of the world up to the time when this letter was written. Around 359 B.C., I am told, or I've read, Philip II, who happened to be the father of Alexander the Great, came to power in Macedonia. We call that Greece, modern-day Greece. Immediately, 
one of the things he did was to modernize his army. His goal in modernizing his army was to expand his kingdom. Now, as you often hear in the news modern day, in order for the military to do their job, somebody's got to give funds. They have to appropriate money to pay for that. Well, he had the same problem. And so he looked at Philippi. He annexed Philippi because Philippi was a place that was known for its gold mines. And so they could use that money to fund the army to expand the kingdom. When he died, his son Alexander carried on his plan and made it bigger. How about that for a short lesson? One thing I want to point out, though, that I learned in my study of this, and there's really, if you're a historian, read about it. Philippi is an interesting, I, I printed out from my uh, internet uh, an article by David Padfield. It was about nine or ten pages long, which was an excellent outline, and so many other things. My concern is how this relates to us as we begin studying the book of Philippi. But one thing that was brought out by Mr. Hendrickson that just is, we need to be reminded of this all the time. Remember, history is his story, and the providential hand of God is all over history. And this comment was made, and I was, I was very impressed by it. It has been truly said, if Philip and Alexander had not gone east, Paul and the gospel which he proclaimed could not have come to the west. For these conquerors brought the one world of Hellenistic speech that made possible the spread of the gospel to many regions. If you look at modern-day missions, one of the struggles is getting the word into the heart language of people. Well, when you have the whole area speaking one language, that's really good. It's encouraging, and it makes your job easier. In Papua New Guinea, I've been to PNG a couple of times in 1994 and 1997. The, the, the country of Papua New Guinea has one major language that many speak. It's called Pidgin, P-I-D-G-I-N. So anywhere you go in PNG, you can use that, and quite often you can communicate. Now, in various villages and tribes, they have other languages as well, which people know in addition to pidgin. So it makes it easier to be able to share the gospel if they know that pidgin language. That's the idea here. And God orchestrated that. God brought that to pass so that the gospel could spread. Well, two centuries later, Philippi came under Roman rule. They say about 146 B.C., Macedonia was governed by Rome, and after an historic battle around 42 B.C., the Battle of Philippi, Philippi became a Roman colony. Now, these colonies took on the character of being what they call miniature or little Romes. They were a small-scale replica of what was happening in Rome. And again, let me read here from those who have done deeper study than myself. What about Philippi? What about these inhabitants? Well, they were predominantly Romans, though the natives lived alongside them. Roman citizens naturally took great pride in being Romans. They enjoyed the rights of Roman citizenship, such as freedom from being scourged. You know what scourging is, right? That's what our Lord Jesus endured. They were free from arrest except in extreme cases, and they, were, they had the right to appeal to the emperor. Their names remained on the roll back in Rome. Their language was Latin. They loved to dress according to the Roman style. 
The coins of Philippi bore the Latin inscriptions, and something that intrigued me was, since the military is much in the news in our country, veterans were treated royally. They were given a special parcel of land, and they were up on the scale, as it were, above other people. They really were honored by those folks. Living in this place or a Roman colony, you had economic privileges, you had political advantages as well. Now, in these cities, they had two main people who kind of governed it. You have what we would call a governor, but then the governor had his police or constables who would do their bidding in running these colonies. Now, in doing that, Rome was smart. There were mutual advantages. Not only did those who live in that colony receive great privileges, but Rome profited by this arrangement. Its frontiers were being safeguarded against the enemy, and again, its veterans were being treated with respect and honor. Now, I wish I had time to go into a whole lot more of the history, but I want to show you about four places in Philippians, randomly, where an understanding of that part of the world and what was going on will give us a better understanding as we work our way through Philippians. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Philippians with me? I want to show you a couple, two or three verses where knowing something about the history, knowing something about the context will make, a, make the light shine on a little bit better. In chapter 1 and verse 13, you remember one of the things we're going to learn in chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says, so that it has become known throughout the whole praetorium or empirical guard, and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's testimony spread among the guards. Well, that's significant because this would be encouraging to those who read this letter. Possibly some of these, quote, guards were part of the families back in Philippi. So there was a connection as Paul's making this statement that would intrigue them and raise their interest. In chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul is talking about their lifestyle. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that phrase, manner of life, can be translated citizenship. Your behavior as citizens, let it be becoming of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I can hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That manner of life slash citizenship is important. Roman citizenship was very advantageous to those who had it. And Paul's going to take that idea and show in chapter 3 at the end that citizenship in heaven is far better and far greater than citizenship in Rome, as advantageous as that was. And that certainly is a word to us as well. We, we are citizens of two, two kingdoms. We live in this world, we're citizens of the United States or some other country, but our citizenship, as Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 20, is in heaven, and that far is superior to what we have here. And we need to remember that. And we need wisdom and grace from God and understanding to know how to function in both of those domains. Thirdly, in that same passage, reading on from verse 27, he says, And do not be frightened, in verse 28, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. They are very much aware 
of the persecution that comes in following Christ, which leads to severe suffering. And in Philippi, as well as other Roman colonies, the non-Christians were pressuring the Christians to engage in emperor worship. When they refused to do that, they suffered greatly. One of the initial responses of those who believe the gospel is they no longer said, Caesar is Lord. They now transferred that allegiance to Jesus, a curios. Jesus is Lord. And that got them into trouble. And Paul is saying in that passage, if we work through this, we'll see that. You need to remember that it's going to happen. The privilege that we have to believe on Jesus Christ is a privilege far above all other privileges, but commensurate with that privilege is to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now that sounds a little foreign to Western ears. You know, we think we're suffering if our car breaks down, or the toast gets burned in the morning, or other, and I don't want to call them trivial things, they're interruptions in life. But I saw my brother this morning who just came back from Peru last week, helping missionary families, and he said, you know what? Every time I go away to another country, I keep asking myself, what in the world do I have to gripe and bellyache about? It is that perspective, if you're blessed to have that, that will kind of bring into focus what really is important and what it means to serve Jesus Christ. One other place in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 through 10, you know that passage, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. Now stop. What is that name? You're going to read and be tempted to say, Jesus, that name was given to him at his birth. Keep reading. The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name. The name of Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that, that has the idea of worshiping Christ for who He is. And again, in the context of this letter being written, in the Roman colonies, there was pressure on the people to flatter Nero with divine titles and honors. In such an atmosphere, Paul reminds them that only Jesus Christ deserves the honor of that title of Lord and Master. That's kind of a little bit about the city. We'll just leave it there. I, I trust that if you have a commentary, and believe me, if you go online, there are so many resources to study about Philippi, the city, and all that happens. But I want to mainly kind of talk about the church this morning, because that's what the letter was written to. And so I want to go back, if you will, with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is the record in Scripture of the origin of, of the church at Philippi. Now to help us along, we've got to go back to chapter 15 a little bit and look at what happened at the Jerusalem Council. And from the Jerusalem Council, these guys set out and they end up in Philippi and the church is birthed. Acts 15. 
And I'm not going to make many comments on these verses. I'm going to read through it with you, just explain some things, and show you how it was born, the church at Philippi. And then as we go through each verse and each section, we'll try to flush out more of what, uh, what the writer is saying. Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So after Paul and Barnabas had no, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great, I circled this word in my Bible, great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them or through them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That is, if you really want to be saved, you want to believe in Jesus, that's cool. But you must believe in Moses, you must be circumcised, you must come back under the law in order to have a right standing before God. Well, verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And so they did come together to consider this matter. Peter stands up and speaks. Barnabas and Paul stand up and speak. Then James speaks, and they say things that are necessary recorded there. I'm not going to take time to read that. I just want to give you the overflow, the overview. All right? Then in verses 22 and 23, Then it seemed good to the apostles at the conclusion of this meeting, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter, and the letter was written, and the letter is now being distributed. Now verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Verse 36 of 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back. Let's visit the places we did on our first missionary journey. Let's encourage the brothers. Barnabas said, that's a great idea. Um, verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, or John Mark. Immediately, Paul said, nah. Back in chapter 13 and verse 13, he deserted us. Paul, at this point, didn't have a heart for quitters. Nah, not taking him. And so... Again, the Bible says there was a dissension, or verse 39 says a sharp disagreement. Please remember, brothers can disagree sharply. And here's the sovereignty of God again. God uses this sharp disagreement to now have two missionary partners going out in various directions. We've got two teams of missionaries going out now. Did it make it right? Well... As I've thought about this over the years, I think Paul probably sat down and he thought about his uh, sharp dissension and his opinion and his conviction. And he thought, hmm, maybe, maybe as a little harsh, because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, as he's concluding that, he says, bring John Mark with you to me. He is profitable to me in the ministry. Something happened, don't know what it was. Even the great Apostle Paul can say, you know what? Maybe I spoke too soon. Maybe I was too harsh. Bring him with you to me. 
And so there was that dissension, as it were. They have now two teams. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good. I was reminded of another verse in Psalm 76 and verse 10, where it says, God can take the wrath of man to bring praise to himself, and the rest of it, he can just brush aside. God is sovereign. God uses all kinds of things to accomplish his purpose, and he does hear the sharp disagreement he uses to bring glory to his name and to spread the gospel to other places. So now we have two teams. Now, chapter 16. Paul comes to Derby and to Lystra. There was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. What is Macedonia? Greece. Please remember that. That's significant. Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he takes him and circumcises him. Wait just a minute. They were just in Acts chapter 15, and they came together to discuss, do you have to be circumcised to to be a Christian? The issue here is not salvation. The issue here is identification. If the issue here had been salvation, that is, you have to be circumcised to go to heaven, Paul would have never done that because there's another place in the New Testament where he refused to do it. So as Timothy circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, it's identification. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they, I circled that word they, because now we have Paul, Silas, and Timothy. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, Acts 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. That meeting produced a letter. The authority behind that letter was received. The churches were strengthened. God was blessing, and people were being converted. Now, verse 6 of chapter 16. So they go through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Got to stop there for a moment. Why would the Holy Spirit forbid anybody to speak the word of God? I'm like one fellow said, you know what? I may not understand it all, but I worry a lot. I'm not sure, except I know that God is sovereign. And as I read through the Old Testament, sometimes I read, God says, don't pray for them. Don't waste your time. Proverbs chapter 1. God says, I called, I called, I called, I called. You refused. The day's going to come when you're going to call. I ain't going to listen. But he did this, again, the sovereignty of God. God stopped them there because he had a other plan for the continent of Europe. So when they come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them again. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and here's that famous Macedonian vision of which you probably are aware. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. There's speculation as to who this person was. Don't know, but some pretty good ideas. I won't go out on a limb right now, but it's interesting. But God is moving, God is revealing, God is directing. So this man of Macedonia is standing there urging him, perhaps begging and pleading and saying, please come to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, now please notice the wording, immediately we. Who's writing the book of Acts? Luke. And then there were four. Paul, Silas, Timothy, now Luke. Okay? We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, again, to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11, Acts 16. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, it is a leading city in at least three ways. Politically, geographically, because it's at a crossroads, and commercially, a very important city. There are those who believe that most of our work in sharing the gospel and planting churches should be done close to a main city. not sure about that, but here's an instance where it was very advantageous. So we remained in this city some days. Verse 13. Now, why did they stay there for a few days before they did anything? Well, it is speculated they need to get their bearing. You know, what's this place about? They need to get to know people. They need to learn the city. So they stayed there for a few days. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, a day of worship set aside, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Please notice there's no mention of men there. Again, probably it was not a synagogue or a temple because you had to have at least 10 men for that to come to place. So you've got women who are gathered. And in this gathering, there are women, and one of them was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. You'll read about Thyatira in the book of Revelation, the letters in Revelation. She was a seller, perhaps first an importer, as well as a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I'm going to come back to that at the end of our message today. That is a very, very significant statement. God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Someone's called that the rare tact of inviting missionaries to your home. And they felt, they didn't feel pressured, but they felt compulsion. She really wanted them to come. And so they graciously gave in. Let me pause for a moment and tell you a little bit about Lydia. Lydia was um, a pagan by birth, and up to this point was probably a pagan. She was acquainted in her hometown with the religion of the Jews. Maybe she accepted it uh, as much as she could. It was better than the pagan cult, but somehow it did not give her complete satisfaction or joy or contentment that she was looking for. Now, historically, she was a businesswoman. Possibly she was a widow who was carrying on the business of her husband who had passed away. She was an importer, a seller of purple. That should cause no surprise, for the place of her birth was popular and famous for that. Garments made out of this purple dye were expensive. You had one of two ways of doing it. You could take the, the, the little creature and take a drop of purple out of it, or you could crush them and get a lesser 
good kind of purple to be used. And since Philippi was a Roman colony, it was an excellent market for purple garments. They used it in their togas, their tunics, their rugs, their tapestries. And again, remember, they are eager to copy Rome and be like Rome. Now, to handle such an expensive product, Lydia probably was a wealthy woman. And the account in Acts seems to imply that she had a pretty big house because she's inviting these folks to come in and stay with her. Someone said this about her. It's been often remarked Lydia came from Asia with her earthly treasures, and she's now discovering spiritual treasures in Europe. So what happened? She's hearing the gospel being preached. She's hearing the Old Testament being explained and pointed to Jesus Christ. And as she's listening to that, what did God do? He opened her heart. He gave her spiritual eyes to see, to perceive that what was being said was the truth. And so she believed. She received. She accepted the truth and said, yes, that's the truth. And God saved her. God brought her into his family. And of course, it says also that her household as well. Being good Baptist, we like to note that she was baptized immediately after she was converted because we believe that's God's pattern for new Christians. I love the fact that immediately after her conversion, she gives evidence of being a child of God. She cares for these guys. She shows kindness and compassion and tenderness. You know, that's, that's really a good evidence of being a Christian, isn't it? Our attitude toward those who are homeless, orphans, widows, showing compassion. By the way, my understanding is only one definition of religion in the Bible. James chapter 1 and verse 27. You know what it says? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widowless and the widow and the orphan. And by the way, you know what that word visit means in the Greek language? It doesn't mean to stop by and say, hi, nice to see you, see you later. Not to visit. It means literally to oversee, like the bishops and the elders are supposed to do the congregation, to oversee, to care for, to be concerned for. I had an experience this morning that's still rocking me. I don't know how you feel when you see a homeless person, especially when they got a cup and they're begging. I just, I don't know what to do. So, of course, I stopped by to get some Dunkin' Donuts coffee on the way here because I can't, my, my car won't get all the way here unless I've got coffee with my hand. <laughs> so we pulled in front of this place and this guy looked like he had slept under a bridge for 10 years. And I mean, and he's asking and I just walked past him. I didn't. I don't want to be like, go get a job, you bum. But I didn't know what to do. So I looked at my wife and I said, what should we do? You know the phrase, if you give them a fish to eat for a day, if you teach them how to fish to eat for a lifetime and you just enable them. Well, I got, there's turmoil in my heart. So I went inside and got a cup of coffee. My wife brought it and we split it. We came back and we sat in the car and I said, what am I supposed to do? I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that. I did. Okay, I'll just go in and buy him a donut and give it to him. So I did. I'm not, believe me, I'm not patting myself on the back. But the point, as I've been studying this and seeing the, the reaction and the response of a renewed heart, is you care about people. What's the worst thing I can do? He eats a donut and he enjoys a donut. Maybe he gets 10 more that day. That's not my problem. You understand what I'm saying? Lydia is giving evidence of conversion. 
She's showing that something has happened. She was religious. She had the Jewish religion up here, but she didn't have Christ in her heart. So she's showing that. She's evidencing that. And God is going to use that, as we will see at the end of chapter 16, to bring others into the faith as well. Let's go back to chapter 16. I'm running out of time. Verse 16. 16.16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now that word spirit there is literally translated python. In Greek mythology, it's usually symbolized by a serpent or a dragon. This girl was demon-possessed. At this point, we have a demonic interruption in their ministry of the gospel. She had the ability to tell the future. She was a fortune teller. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, there's that us again, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What is a demon-possessed girl confessing something like that? Hey, the devil's pretty smart. They did the same thing to Jesus during his earthly ministry. And she kept doing this, verse 18, for many days. Paul got annoyed. Would you get annoyed? This demon-possessed girl is following you, barking these things out. So what does he do? Well, thank you very much for that testimony. Praise Jesus. Is that what he says? No, he says to the demon, come out, and they do. Now, why would Paul do that? Let me just give you a principle that I think is true in the Scriptures. God does not need the devil's endorsement. The kingdom of God does not need the endorsement of ungodly, immoral, wicked people. As a matter of fact, I think it's a detriment when somebody doesn't know Christ, doesn't follow Christ, and then stands up and sings amazing grace, praise God, I give God all the glory, and I'm looking and saying, what God are you giving glory to? We don't need your endorsement, please. So he stops the issue right there. Well, now the real trouble begins because the guys who own this girl were making money off her ability and they're upset. So what do they do? They grabbed a hold of Paul and Silas. I don't know about Luke and Timothy, but they grabbed those two guys, dragged them into the marketplace. Remember that word from the Sermon on Redemption? The Agora. They brought them before the rulers. They brought them to the magistrates and said, these men are... Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in. They attacked them. They tore the garments off. They beat them. Paul rehearses this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and remembers in verse 2 about what happened. And in that verse, it could be translated, spitefully treated us, cruelly attacked us, injuriously treated us, met with sufferings and outrage. It was a really difficult time for Paul and for Silas. It was painful. And I think in his humanity, Paul was humiliated before this crowd. So what did they do? Threw him in jail. What did Paul and Silas do? Well, they're just worshiping God. <laughs> About midnight, they start singing hymns. Now, what were those hymns? I personally believe they were the Psalms, because the Psalms are meant for singing. So they're singing. All the prisoners are listening, and all of a sudden... There was a great earthquake, verse 26, and the foundations were shaken. The doors were opened. Everybody's bonds were unfastened because remember, as it says in verse 24, they had their feet in the stocks fastened, possibly their hands as well. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword to kill himself. He was terrified. Why? Because if they escape, it's his life for theirs. Would you be scared? I would be. 
But Paul cried out when he saw this, don't harm yourself for we. Now this is now the prisoners. All of us are here together. We're okay. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now listen, that's not only salvation, which we think about, but I think initially is, what can I do to save my hide? <laughs> my life's on the line if you guys get out of here. How can I be saved? Well, when you put all of the things together, the exorcism of that young girl, the songs that he probably heard before he fell asleep, the work of the Spirit of God all together, what can I do to be delivered from my condition? And what does Paul tell him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Isn't it interesting how much has been piled on to what you have to do to become a Christian? Even in evangelical circles. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord and you will be saved. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. There's discipleship. And to all in his house. He took them. There's that same evidence. The same hour he washed their wounds. They were baptized. He set food before them. And he rejoiced. There's that word joy again with his whole household. But when it was day... Somebody snuck some crow pie to the magistrate because they began eating crow, realizing what had happened because Paul tells them here, oh, yes, I'm a Jew, but guess what? I'm a card-carrying Roman. Ah! When they heard the word Roman, they knew they were in trouble. So they humbly walked over, munching on their crow pie, saying, we're sorry. Would you be so kind as to get out of here? Notice it says they asked them to leave. And of course they did. And as it were, the church at Philippi was born. Now, look at verse 40, because I said earlier, Lydia was not the only one who was converted during this time. When they went out of the prison and visited Lydia again, they saw the brothers and encouraged them. The brothers... That means there's more than just Lydia and her household and a few Christians. And so let me just conclude this matter. Perhaps another reading of the scriptures in chapter 15 and 16 would help undergird what we've said this morning. Again, Mr. Hendrickson, whom I have borrowed a lot from on this historical part, said this, The work in Philippi met with great success. Lydia and the jailer and others were converted. We have the first church in Europe to whom they speak words of encouragement. Then Paul and Silas head toward Thessalonica. Timothy either accompanied them then or came a little later. And Luke stays behind in Philippi. Wow. This historian also said, all in all it appears that even after two generations after Paul died, the church at Philippi was still standing firm. I want to share with you a couple of takeaways today because I think they're very personal and real to us as God's people today. Remember I said that phrase, whose heart the Lord had opened with Lydia? I have found over the years that churches struggle. Well, how do we evangelize our neighborhood? How do we reach out and, and win lost people to Jesus? And so we've got to have another program. We've got to have an event. You know the greatest witness to the gospel 
is a holy life that's not afraid to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Money, time, and energy is spent on events and things for neighborhoods. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing all those things, but I just wonder, don't raise your hand, how many of you have ever shared the gospel with anyone? The reason I ask this is because I have asked that before. And not many hands have gone up. Let me take one step back. How many could set forth the gospel if I ask you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and say, would you please share with me with Scripture what the Bible says is the If somebody in God's providence walked up to you today and said, listen, I, I know I'm, I'm not a Christian. And if I die, I'm not going to go be with God. How, how can I come to know Christ as Savior? What would you say? Please don't say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You'll wear your finger to the bone looking for that in the scriptures. It's not there. You understand? I'm not, I'm not rebuking you. Know, I'm not chiding you. But I want you to understand something. The best way to win people to Jesus Christ is one-on-one. Where you live, where you work, in your neighborhood. Remember what that missionary said this morning? I have a friend who was that missionary that I visited in Papua New Guinea who said, you have to earn the right to be heard. Go on a street corner and say, Jesus is coming, you're going to go to hell, believe on Him. People are going to look at you like, well, you are crazy. Earn the right. Get to know people. Serve them. Love them. And God will use that, I believe, a congregation of 40 people. Each one determined, Lord, this week, by Your grace, my job, my neighborhood, where I go get coffee, where I get whatever I do, I'm going to look for opportunities to talk about Jesus. I believe God will open those doors and we can share the gospel and win people to Christ and disciple them. But here's the, here's the balance. The Lord opened her heart because the message was preached. That's the order. The gospel must be preached. People must hear the good news. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So be encouraged. Know the gospel. Share the gospel. Plead with lost people to come to know Jesus. And God will bless that. He'll open hearts. He'll open eyes. John chapter 3. That's the new birth. That's being born from above. I found that when churches and people actually get a hold of that or that gets a hold of it, it's freeing. It's, it's freedom. All I have to do is share the good news of Jesus? Yes. And God will do His work. God will call into His family those for whom Christ died. And then the gospel will spread and people will be converted. One final thing, and this is for all churches, but since I'm preaching to you this morning, I'll share this last thing with you. That fellow Padfield whose uh, nine-page article on Philippi ends with these thoughts. Now, take this for what he says, because it's true of all of us. The last thing he says in this article says, having a great past does not guarantee a good future. Like so many places in the lands of the Bible, you can see great monuments and relics of the past, but in the background you will also see the minaret of the local mosque, from which the Musain calls the faithful to prayer. This is what happens when people stop searching the Scriptures every day. I'm not 
as familiar as I probably will be over the next several weeks or whatever, of the history of living legacy. I'm sure it's a good one. But you can't rest on your laurels. Yesterday's manna is not good for tomorrow's grace. Today. Continue searching, studying, reading, learning, sharing, day by day. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Don't Praise the Lord for the past. Thank Him for His goodness and His faithfulness. But carry on with Him day by day, and God will bless you, I believe.